Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Lucy, we're having a lovely week in the midst of all these storms. We have a storm of immense popularity surrounding us. Our numbers at the podcast are doing very well. We're getting lots and lots of new listeners all around the world. We're so grateful to have you. And I'm not very good at doing these sort of self-congratulatory things, not because I don't like them and I'm a modest person. We do like them. I really like them. Oh, I love them. I just think I might sound a bit cheesy. So will you take over, Lucy, with some of this cheese? Just to say that we're just so delighted that anyone at all is listening, frankly. Um, please do keep listening because we love it. And and get in touch with us. Talk to us about things. We did get one letter, very nice letter, a week or so ago, from somebody who's going to lives, lives in the States. I think I won't give names. We don't give out names, but lives in the States and going to visit London and asking if we could recommend a good walking tour of the homes and neighbourhoods of writers who've lived in London because they couldn't find one. And I'm sorry that we haven't replied to you directly. We're replying now. Hello. But also we couldn't, I couldn't really think of one. And I don't live in London. Look, I, I, I'm just saying. I could maybe recommend somebody in Dublin if you if you get to Ireland, and I'd be very delighted to. That would be brilliant as well, wouldn't it? But if it, but let's put it as a call out. So if any of our listeners do know of any brilliant guides, I suppose literary guides to London. Yes, what our correspondent is looking for is someone who's really got a good knowledge of history and literature i.e. Not, not a sort of, you know, uh, no shade on them, but not a sort of just a kind of blue plateau, uh, somebody yeah, who's yeah. got a real feeling for some of the stories. And I feel sure that one of or more of our wonderful listeners will know. So please get in touch. I think our our listener is coming relatively soon, beginning of next month. So um, if you're moved to share your crack recommendations with us, please do. And in fact, we should give an email address. You could write to letters at the hyphen tls.co.uk, the market for the podcast, and that will get to us. And Alex, also, I'm, I have to say I'm a little bit proud of myself this week because I've done some rereading based on what something you said last week. Oh, go, go tell. Because I, we said we were talking about the kind of the many, many storms, which seem to be constantly whipping around everywhere. And you said, I'm here on Cold Comfort Farm. And I thought, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I haven't read that for a while. So I had the great pleasure of rereading Cold Comfort Farm. It's never the wrong thing to do, is it? It's not, is it? It's really not. It was delightful. I might it's have to do it myself aged now. so well. It's a, there's a couple of kind of dodgy bits, but basically it's just aged so well and it's so funny. And I, I like to think that you live on Cold Comfort Farm. Though is it before or after is what I wonder. Well... <laughs> Should we leave that to the listener's imagination? Yeah, quite. Right, moving swiftly on. This week, Lamorna Ash gets caught up in the classroom power struggles of the latest Mean Girls reboot. And Professor Eric Naiman on the challenges of marking student essays in the age of chat GPT. But first, this week, we're going to make fetch happen. And if you're wondering what on earth I'm on about, let me explain that it's a phrase from Mean Girls, the sharp, funny and highly influential high school comedy from 2004, written by Tina Fey. It has now been rebooted, updated and just for good measure, turned into a musical. So we asked Lamorna Ash to go along and report back for us. And we're very happy that she can join us now. Lamorna, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So in your piece, you tell us about some absolutely brilliant and slightly alarming Mean Girls related activity in your own school. 
before we get to that, could you perhaps put that in context for our listeners who don't know the film, one of which is Alex, it turns out. She's never seen Mean Girls. Yes, me. So I want to know what make fetch means. I need to <laughs> know make that. fetch happen. So, oh, it's, oh, it's the three words. Yeah, okay. you have to make fetch happen, except it's not one of the cool girls that says that, except she is in a... It's very complicated. Lamona. Yeah, <laughs> let me take you through fetch. This, this so, okay, please, yeah, please. Go. Let's take this as a sort of microcosm to the whole I just, thing. I wish someone had told me at 14 that this would one day become a useful thing to have that knowledge, <laughs> that I'd be on the TLS able I to explain about it. useful. <laughs> <laughs> so the Plastics are a group of mean girls who are at this school in Illinois, North Shore High. and they are all trying to accrue cultural capital in some way or another, in some way to make themselves more interesting or basically to stay relevant and therefore to have the queen mean girl, Regina George, to continue liking them. So one of them is trying to make fetch happen. The term fetch in this case, meaning that's cool. So she keeps trying to make fetch happen. In the, in the 2024 adaptation of it, the musical, that character, Gretchen Wiener, she again says fetch. And then when someone says, you're never going to make fetch happen, where does that even come from? She goes, oh, some old TV film or something like Juno, <laughs> which is again one of those, because that was another classic of my generation, um, yeah. teenage coming of age films. Is Juno like a thing from the past now? I think it must be. Oh, I'm, afraid it is, I'm afraid <laughs> it is. I'm afraid it is. just impossible. <laughs> Okay. I actually, I rewatched that as well over Christmas with my friends and something, and I think this, it's what's so interesting about watching those films when you're 13, 14, totally influenced by the young people in it, but also you have complete blinkers on where you're only noticing the young people. And when we rewatched Juno, and I've had this experience with so many films, we suddenly realised that the adults in the film are having the most terrible time trying to adopt this, this baby. And that it's, it's a really painful, agonising film about this couple breaking down but I just don't even think I had any idea that that was happening the first time I saw it ah uh, you see I would now isn't her the mum in Juno or is she the stepmom is she her stepmom she's CJ from the West Wing anyway yes, am I right is. so of course I watched it and I I only watched it might as well have been called CJ from the West Wing <laughs> Alison Janney for me you see here you go you're right we we, we watched through our own our own lenses don't we okay at the risk of sounding very boring and old school I think the same thing. Well, the same thing happens with a lot of things, actually. And the same thing happened for me. I mean, it has also, of course, happened with films, but it happened for me with Middlemarch. The second time I read Middlemarch, the first time you just don't care about anything but what Dorothy is going to do. And then the second time you you see everybody else having an awful time and wonder how they're going to get out of it and all of that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. And by the time you're you're really well into middle age, you're very, very sorry for Casabon, aren't you? <laughs> this poor <laughs> guy. There he is. He's there he is, rafting away, exactly. not being sort of loved. And he's all, and then, you know, that's it. Doesn't work out for him. Anyway, Lamorna, sorry. Mean Girls, make fetch happen. Yeah, so there are the mean girls and then Katie comes along, doesn't she? Katie comes along in the initial Mean Girls. She comes vaguely from Africa. And in the new adaptation, she comes from Kenya because at least on a cosmetic level, uh, there's some <laughs> We've kind learned of that there are countries. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, so Katie, it was homeschooled. There's also a joke from Tina Fey, who is still the teacher, having been the teacher 20 years ago in the original Mean Girls, that when we find out that Katie was homeschooled, she goes, oh, great. So that's um, less money for me and my union is against people like you. So there's like, a few updated jokes. But mm. Katie turns up, she... Uh, has no experience of so-called girl world but her parents are zoologists and she has this understanding of the hierarchies within animals within animals in uh, on the plains of Africa and she is able to transfer this over to start to get a sense of girl world and which ones are the key predators um, and how all of them are living in relation to one another and there's this incredible scene in the original where they're all at the mall because the action in a very good teen way is either in school or at the mall or in their bedrooms on the phone to one another mm. and suddenly you get this mystical magical moment where all of them are actually acting like animals um which to be honest is not dissimilar to how they're acting when they are girls as well yeah <laughs> horrible the girls will start grooming each other and the boys start sort of panting and hooting and showing off and throwing themselves yeah. about. And... Oh, it's sounding a bit Lars von Trier now. <laughs> no, it's not re not really. <laughs> okay, all right. Is that a bit, bit hopeful of me? Okay. So Katie comes along and she sort of, for various reasons, ingratiates herself with the plastics. 
who are yes. these who are these three and the queen bee of whom is the aptly named Regina George and then it's about the various kind of pitfalls and problems that 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 she has along the way so Lamorna tell us what you say in your piece about what happened at your own school which just I was just absolutely amazed by it which really does show how influential the film was yeah so at my school we watched it every term in maths class on the last day of term we'd be shown me and girls and that the the obvious reason for that, if there's any obvious reason for it, is that there is a whole subplot about maths, that Katie is mm. amazing at maths mm. and she is part of mathletes. Um, but also I think it was that was a teacher who was one of those teachers who was obsessed with our gossip, which is so unpalatable as a kid. He'd ask us, what's the gossip, girls? And then in our year, in year nine, which in my head, having worked with teenagers quite a lot, is the hardest year because it really is the point at which they suddenly become so self-conscious and these cruelties start to happen. And a group rose to the top of our school. They were called the Buff Eight, the eight I of them, self-titled. The Buff <laughs> Eight. Imagine <laughs> calling yourself the Buff Eight. I mean, riding for a fall, I would say. Oh, I know completely. I actually, the, the head of the buffet, who is now my friend, and it, I don't know, sometimes I, it's funny now, I said that I was going to put this in the piece and she still is horrified and humiliated by it. Like, Please don't name me, which <laughs> no, of we course won't, I we won't. won't and it yeah, kudos to not. her, at least for the wonderful name. Yeah, exactly. And they had they had a burn book. So a crucial plot element of Mean Girls is the burn book, which the girls use as some kind of therapeutic offloading, the Mean Girls, where they write down nasty things um, about uh, other girls in their year. So that someone is a grotsky little biatch is my favourite one. Um, and someone is a, a fat virgin and that kind of thing. And because everyone had watched Mean Girls at my school, this group then created a burn book, left it very unsubtly lying around because the whole point if you're going to make a burn book it has to be read that sort of you know the way that the plot must go and I was thinking about when I was watching the the adaptation of it to what extent Mean Girls made us meaner or you know offered us the weaponry with which to carry out this cruelty mm. but I think ultimately there's we would have found any form for that that we could have used any other high school film all of them show this or we would have just naturally had it in ourselves to so this was just the the sort of vector exactly mean girls it was it was the just that attack. form that it took and something i wanted to ask you about is you know as a coming to this as an outsider is how much are the phrases that people recognize from it which I recognize the phrases but I don't associate them with mean girls did it create them or was it picking up on the language of the time oh it's a, it's a mixture quite a lot of it is picking up on the language at a time and I've since listened to the music of the new one quite a lot and it really is noticing the shift in, in the kind of like jargon that teenagers use but some of it there's these particular phrases that spring from that um, that people say or, or people at my age said all the time, like, I'm trying to think of a good example. Oh, there's one line where they do these apologies to one another. And one of them says, I don't hate you because you're fat. You're fat because I hate you. And horrible, brilliant <laughs> oh, lines like that. Yes, um, no, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty, what's the word? That's why I was saying sharp. It's not quite brutal, but it's not far off, is it? I mean, it's no. funny and it's satire, but it's tough. Some of totally. It. I don't want to come across all cancel culture. I don't think we're allowed to say things like that anymore. Well, they don't. Yeah, the lines have changed in that way. And ah, still... I see. Yeah. I see. But actually, Tina Fey said something really interesting about that, that what she thinks is that a character like Regina George just knows, they're wily, they're wily teenagers, knows that the language has changed and therefore the ways in which you can be cruel have shifted. So, in fact, I texted my school friends. I was like, do you think kids have got less mean than our age? And they were like, no way. It's just that they have to be sneakier. Things have moved online. There's more anonymity with it. What you can bully someone about has altered when I was researching a bit about for the piece I was looking into the um source that Tina Fey used and there's this incredible like 8,000 word New York Times piece about the co-writer Rosalind Wiseman who in the early noughties would go around schools and she would try to help teenage girls treat each other less badly and so she would make them all stand and read apologies to one another and they would all okay. cry. So that does happen in the Ooh. film. Exactly. And and there's other things like in, in this piece, they talk about the horror of three-way calls, which was a particular attack mode at the time 
and is used as a kind of almost like Shakespearean gulling scene within the film where three people are on a call, but one girl doesn't know that the third girl is on the call and is then um, fed a line of, you know, don't you think that she's a bit of an, a mean person? And when she says, yes, I do, then the other one goes, oh, I can't believe you said that because she's been on the line the whole time. <gasps> yeah, yeah. Okay. And then in the piece as well, what's so interesting is it's by Margaret Talbot and she, it's so in depth. She then interviews quite a lot of the girls who go through this process of trying to treat each other each other better and she says how effective do you think the methods uh, that Wiseman uses are and the kids say oh it's a bit corny like we're more likely to sort it out ourselves by bullying one another further but it was very useful to learn their different popularity terms so again it just becomes another thing they can incorporate oh gosh Alex this makes it sound awful but we have to say this is a comedy this is a satire just sounds frightening I'm terrified. It's all heightened with the colour turned up and yeah. and, and as the mourner says, there's these wonderful scenes where the, they turn into sort of yes. pack animals and things. But it, it's, it is supposed to be funny. It is also tough. The thing about it is that the mean girls in it, the plastics, two of them aren't really very mean at all anyway, but they're, they're really the villains of the piece, not the heroines, but they're sort of irresistible. The, 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 the main character, Katie, turns into one, more or less. That's why it's funny that they're the ones... It, you know that in your school they're the ones that they that they copied I mean they're not supposed to be the ad they're not the admirable figures they're absolutely not and yet they're the ones that everybody wants to be around you know it's the thing about the devil yeah. having all the best tunes isn't it oh completely yeah they're irresistible in that way but I think that sense of it sounding really cruel I think and you know so many contemporary high school films do this like eighth grade where kids get bullied and that's does the opposite and really looks at the kids who have a hard time at school and are trying to make it but I was thinking about this of it happens and it's cruel and it definitely has after effects but the other side of this is is that way that you're learning so much about social cues and and each time you hurt someone at that age and then you're you realize the repercussions are awful and I do think it teaches you ways to be kinder to one another and that the film ends with them all doing basically all, all realizing that at the end of the year they cannot go on like this um, they do this trust exercise where they each have to apologize to one another they notice how much they've hurt one another and how they're all actors within the system and they come out the other side and I think I have that with my school friends where it was awful and there's days you don't want to go to school and but and yet our relationships are so strong because I think you're trying out everything you're learning so much about how not to behave and and it's so different from boys in that way who are like possibly more physical but are not having those deep deep relationships where yes gossip's currency but also you are talking about everything that's happening in your lives with one another. Mm. So to get back to the film what does this reboot do then that's different from the original? What's 20 years done for it? What Has it changed much? I suppose they've got social media and WhatsApp and things for a start. Exactly that. So it opens in like iPhone aspect ratio with, um, I think they're live on TikTok. I don't have TikTok. It could be Instagram live, but there's definitely elements where things spread faster through the internet. There's a line in one of the songs about um, that filter you use, meaning Instagram filters. That's just how I look which I think is really good. And then in terms of the plot, it's almost exactly the same. There's, there's the same lines from the original. The characters have the same names. The thing that's different is that it's a musical and it's based on the Broadway musical. Uh, and that means that the plot is condensed quite a lot because the music takes up a lot of time. And that's basically it. Otherwise, honestly, the, the arc is identical to the original. Gosh, is there right. something, though, that's... Well, obviously, there's something in society that's different about the way we think about girls and what a girl's identity versus a boy's identity. And obviously, the fluidity of gender is. That must be reflected somehow, even if not overtly, in any kind of updating of a sort of boys, girls in juvenilia kind of setting. Well, I think this is where the film fails because I don't think it does that sufficiently. And what I would say is that Mean Girls, in a way, was groundbreaking and ahead of its time because it, it totally... Boys are nothing in no, the original yeah, film. Not, it passes the Bechtel test with flying colours. <laughs> yeah, it really does. They're just passive. They're another object to be used within the girls' wars. And so I think that's one of the reasons why we loved Mean Girls when we were young. But I think with this update... 
again, it strikes me as lazy. It strikes me as paramount, just making more money off a good thing that they don't think has it shifted. There's nothing really playing with the fluidity of gender at all. Uh, there's one character who in the original, she was kind of a queer icon, Janice. She was a goth. And in the new version, she's ever so slightly more out, but still in this way that it doesn't get to be spoken about. It, it really doesn't push like that at all. The girls still have the same expectations about, it's, it's still very feminine coded clothing. I couldn't really see any sense of trying to really think about what's different for young people now. That is surprising. And is Janice really called Janice Ian? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is a brilliant. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> She's like the embodiment. References. The original Janice is like the almost like the embodiment of the song at seventeen, except she is actually very pretty, of course, because everyone's very pretty. So she's just a, she's just a bit of a goth, and she's very pretty. But she's. Do you think that's right, Lamona? She's just she's sort of embodying the the antithesis of the popular girls, the the, the queen bees, all that sort of thing. Exactly that, because she and she had been a queen bee before, but she got burned badly by Regina, and she is this only character who is yeah wearing big baggy shirts and has her huge black sort of ringed eye makeup, and she doesn't play the game at all. She's completely anti the game, and yet in this version, she seems much more part of it. Uh, even though she has the same lines, it's like they they weren't brave enough to make her difficult and bold and angry as she was in the original. Mm. I was thinking about um, you say that, that that it's kind of it's all stuck in a kind of groundhog day because it's always repeating itself. I was thinking about the earlier wave of high school films like uh, Ten Things I Hate About You and the, the Mighty Clueless, and of course those are based on on Shakespeare and Jane Austen. So there's a lot to compete with. But part of the point of those is that you change, don't you? And you and you're right, Lamona. There is a scene at the end. There's the sort of forgiveness scene, and then there's a scene at the prom where you know where people treat each other better. But the key thing that you highlight is that then in the 2004 film, they turn around and they look, and the next they can see the next three plastics, the next three mean girls walking up the road, clearly about to start dominating the school. It really is sort of in a circle, isn't it? Yeah, this iterative loop of it. And I suppose that's why, in a way, I mean, I think having watched I Love 10 Things I Hate About You at the time and rewatching that, there's there's parts of it where, because it's, yeah, Taming of the Shrew that, that don't work so well anymore. And yet there's something about that sense of kids are always going to have gone through school. They're always going to have their first kisses. They're always going to suddenly have this sense of what their body is in relation to other people that, it does mean that when high school films are done well, they probably will last for an incredibly long time and keep speaking anew to people. Mm. But sadly, you think if so, let's say so Alex hasn't seen either of them. Which one do you think she should see if either of them? There's also Mean Girls 2, which I'm told is a very terrible sequel. So I was not oh. that one. I'd say I'd just go to the original. It's it truly is a great film. There's incredible lines. It's very, very funny. I would also read that piece from 2002 because it even tells you about this character who Regina George is based on uh, this kid who is absolutely the queen bee and then you get the sense from her mum of her obsession with rules and regulations and how she's been like that since she was a child and Regina is dictatorial she says you know you can't you can only wear pink on Wednesdays you mm. can only wear jeans once a week you may never wear tracksuits or you can't sit with us she's a controller completely a controller yeah yeah yeah, And I suppose I'm not allowed to know I've got to see either the original Well probably the original Or this Does she come to a bad end? You probably can't tell me I can tell you she gets hit by a bus and dies No she doesn't but it's a joke in the film That she gets hit by a bus and dies A sort of small odd alarming part of Mean Girls Is how fast their yellow school buses drive it's really... Yes, yes, it really happens quite a lot. Yeah. There's all sorts of things to watch out for in it. <laughs> but okay. Lamorna, thank you so much for braving the mean girls with us today. Thank you. It's, it, it's been an education. <laughs> for those of us at my generation raised on, you know, the breakfast club oh. and that kind of thing, this is an education. I shall immediately scamper off to the local multiplex. Okay, watch out, because next week Alex might be sounding very different. Yeah, 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 <laughs> <Let's see. laughs> exactly. Don't exactly. turn up in pink, Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Lamona. Thank you.
Still to come on the show, Eric Naiman wonders why all of a sudden student essays mysteriously sound the same. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. Now, Eric Naiman has taught at the University of California, Berkeley, for 30 years. But it was only recently that he began to notice certain recurrent words and themes in a group of student essays on Dostoevsky. Why, he wondered, were they also interested in the way that the brothers Karamazov delved into various themes? Why was everything intricate? complex and multifaceted? The answer was ChatGPT. And it set Naaman to thinking what AI meant for the way that a generation of students is beginning to think and to write about literature. The result is a fascinating essay in this week's TLS, and we're delighted that he joins us now to tell us more. Thank you so much for joining us from sunny California. Not so sunny at the moment, but thank you very much. For... Okay, it might be slightly worse on this side of the Atlantic, I have to say, as we're <laughs> bracing for Storm Jocelyn, aren't we, Lucy? Yes, it's just a succession of storms here, and we like to imagine that it's always sunny in California. Yes, I have imagined that you've plucked an orange from, from the tree just before you spoke to us. Now, that's all beside the point. I wondered if you could take us back to, as it were, your sort of moment of revelation, because I'm kind of picturing you marking these essays, reading through them, trying to get to grips with the students' minds and their intentions. Did you begin to realise that there was a kind of sameness about them? And were you bewildered at first? I was initially um, somewhat grateful for the quality of the grammar in the essays. I generally read these papers closely and do kind of line-by-line edits, hoping... um, that um, that will improve the students' writing. And um, so I was noticing I was having to do that much less, which was very nice. But um, then there was this, there were two things. There was the repetition of certain vocabulary items. And there was a sameness in the construction of the essays. Um, And usually I give students a single word as a prompt because I like to be surprised by what they what they write about. Um, And so, you know, it'll be a word like time or uh, masculinity or or some kind of concept. And I've got very interesting, um, and they can come up with their own if they want, but I've gotten very interesting essays in the the past. And it's always nice to learn something from your students. Um, And this time the papers, I noticed that a lot of them, first of all, took a concept and just applied it cookie cutter like to one character after another without any elaboration of an argument or escalation of a theme. And then at the end would say it's complicated, basically. And the other thing that they would do is repeat the central word of the essay, the concept, like masculinity, let's say, right? Um, Again and again and again, but it could be replaced by almost any other word, and it would make just as much sense in the mm-hmm. in the essay. So the grammatical quality of these these essays was better, but the thinking behind it was largely absent. There was kind of no individual engagement with the text, and and I think 
you could tell from that that essay that um, I got I wrote it in a, in a kind of in a moment of uh, of, of sort of rage about. Uh, <laughs> you did seem what, quite cross. <laughs> yeah, that that did. I must say that I actually wondered if you had written the essay partly to demonstrate or to reassure perhaps the editors at the TLS that this was not written uh, by ChatGPT or any large language model because it is a very individual essay. It goes to a place that we'll come on to uh, in a while uh, that I certainly wasn't expecting it to go to. But you do start with this idea of what I suppose is a kind of surface competence that you saw. You you weren't having to intervene so much with your, your red pen, but then you realised that there was this kind of sameness between them and sameness indeed within them. You say that it's not just the vocabulary, it's the structure. Things become more like a list and they become banal, essentially. Yeah, there's really a kind of lack of interest that you can tell on the part of the writer. Um, and that kind of produces a lack of interest in the reader, me, um, because they're kind of easy to to skim to skim through. And um, I wasn't seeing students really engage with these complicated literary texts that that have all these issues that in the past have, you know, I mean, a lot of students sign up for Dostoevsky courses because he engages them in in so many, so many ways. I, getting back to your your point about um the essay not being, written by ChatGPT itself. That came to me a little bit later, and I went back through the essay and took out anything that seemed like a cliche, um, which I guess one should always do, but here I was I was particularly aware of it. And I just think that one of the things that I, I like about writing for the TLS is that they respect their author's voice. You know, I, I've never had a sense with any review that I've done that there was a a house style that the editors were were trying to to fit me me into, and so they let me kind of let me go wild. I guess. I well, also, also, Alex, can I say we would never assume that any of our contributors had written anything with ChatGPT. No, no of it's, course not. It's fascinating to me, Eric, that also that you could see it so clearly. I heard something on the news just today about deep fake videos because they're beginning to be used in. The elections, they're circulating, you know, videos and, and audio of political candidates saying something that they haven't said. Um, and they, they got on a, a sort of a technological guy who said, actually, if a human sits down in front of them, you can tell, which sounded very much like what you were saying. If, if you know, you're you're the person you almost uniquely qualified to look at these things and go, no, that's not a proper engagement with Dostoevsky. That one is. So they're very good but they're not flawless, are they? No, and I, I think there's, um, you know, if you're if you're reading literature, one of the things you're teaching your students to do is to be a close reader, um, and that's still important. And so, you know, as a as a teacher, as a professor, you become a close reader too, and it's it's not that hard. I think I would have harder, I, you know, I'm not trained to read images, right? So so I might have a harder time there. I, I read this piece recently in, in the TLS's competitor, the New York Review of Books. I um, hope it's okay that I mention them. That, uh, that's by, fine. That's fine. We, we very much by, respect them. <laughs> Jessica Riskin, who's a historian of science at Stanford. And it was about Alan Turing and um, kind of the move, the development from Turing to uh, AI today. She wrote it last, last summer. And she talks about the Turing test, which was Turing imagined, you know, that you would have these uh, walls up in front of a computer and a uh, and a person, and um, uh, artificial intelligence would pass the test when um, an average human being, whatever that is, if that person exists, um, couldn't tell the the difference between them. And it struck me reading that that the assumption that that Turing uh, and that maybe all AI people had made since then was that. This test would be passed when AI improved itself to the level of the, you know, average human being. But what's happening is that AI may pass this test by bringing the level of human expression, right? By bringing the the level of the average person's writing down to that of a, a computer. It's kind of like the it occurred to me well, this sort morning, of flattening the field. 
the flattening the field it's it's kind of like the if you remember who tonya harding was yeah yeah, mm. yeah she, it's the tonya harding approach to to, to writing <laughs> novel, novel the humans by making them write like you and then they can't tell gosh that's it so in fact it it may be as as you said that some of your students and we should say it was, it was a minority of your class but nonetheless quite significant it was eight out of 36 essays you know so it's quite significant and it might be that in the future you will read essays by students who haven't you know cheated as it were but it seems like they do they might as well have done because the language will have just come to take on this strange kind of AI inflected sheen. Yes, I think that is that's a really big problem. Um, I just read that Arizona State University has signed a contract with OpenAI uh, to provide ChatGPT, you know, the the advanced model to all its faculty and students, and they're going to incorporate it in their freshman writing classes. So this this is if I were hiring someone for any kind of job involving communication, original thought, approach to policy that might not be standard, um, I would think hard about you know hiring someone from Arizona State after four or five five years of this. And I think that's going to be a big problem. The other thing that really upset me, but so you know, I didn't go into the the personal cases in the in the article, but I did meet with nearly all the students who use ChatGPT, and they almost all admitted it right away. And they all knew that they shouldn't do it, but the it was kind of so easy, right? It was already there on their desktop. They're, they're under a lot of pressure. Um, I think the strain, mental health strain on our students, uh, particularly after the pandemic, and maybe given what's going on in, in politics around the world and in the US as well, is, you know, is acute. But the thing that that was really disheartening was that a couple of the students I didn't know very well, and they hadn't spoken in class and had not really been that engaged. Um, some of the students had been really involved and, and had been, I know they'd been reading the text. They said very valuable things in, in class discussion. Um, and it struck me that if, if students like this, you know, highly functioning students, who wrote better papers on their first paper on crime and punishment and did not use ChatGPT, if they were doing this, there's a major problem here. Mm -hmm. And I guess at that moment, because they have a teacher like you and you sound utterly committed to helping them and to working with them, then you can do a kind of course correction. You can say, look, this is better when you do it on your own. And hopefully they will go away and think, okay, Right. I, I was feeling anxious and I, I used something I shouldn't have done it. And I'm going to going to just I won't do it. It's a wake up call, I suppose. I guess the question is when that doesn't happen in, in the you know, when it becomes more widespread, that's an alarming thing for all teachers everywhere. Yes, I think that's that's exactly right. You know, um, is it a wake up call or not? Uh, this was on at the end of the semester. So, you know, I, I'm not going to probably see them in my classes again. Are they going to do it in another class? If it's a bigger class where the professor is not looking at every paper. So I have I have uh, a grad student who reads half the papers and I read half and then I go over the ones that he has he has looked at. But in a bigger class, professor can't can't really do that. Are they going to get caught? Probably not. And I think getting caught is the wrong way to think about it. Right. It, it's, you know, are they going to learn something from this? Mm. Are they going to mm. try and write differently in the in the future? I don't know. Mm. Mm. It's very interesting, again, that there was a wonderful line. You, you said that you like to surprise your students, but you, there's almost an aside about one of your students who said to you that he reads plot summaries of novels before, not instead of reading the texts, but before the texts themselves, because he doesn't like to be surprised. And I thought, gosh, if you, I mean, fiction, why would you read something and not want to be surprised? And I know we all sometimes gravitate towards things that we like, you know, in moments when we're feeling a little bit more like consolation than challenge. But nonetheless, I mean, unsurprising fiction sounds like the worst kind of fiction. Vladimir Nabokov, whom I work on a lot, you know, has famously has said, you can't read a novel, you can only reread it. So you're trying to, you know, overcome the temporality of, of the experience of reading the novel and see it all before you at once, which is kind of utopian vision. But even he didn't say, you shouldn't read it the first time. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. 
you shouldn't. <laughs> there are people who really do go to the last page. I mean, serious readers who do go to the last page, which again I find extraordinary. But you know, people as long as they as long as they read, long as they read properly. We were talking earlier, Lucy, about how you know when you reread something over years, over many years, perhaps we were talking about Middlemarch, how your entire view of various characters, your relationship with particular characters changes at different points of your life, i.e. you get a bit more interested in the middle-aged ones when you're middle-aged, for example. So, you know, in other words, great works of literature and art in general are dynamic. We hope to have dynamic relationships with them. So if you start off just by reading the summary, uh, that seems to be rather hampering yourself from the get-go. That's a great point. And, and you know, that's, that's true of of something like Anna Karenina. Uh, it's definitely true of Proust, my God. And even with Tolstoy, you know, Tolstoy took so long to write some of these things that that he changed his mind as he as he as he wrote. Though so I have a colleague, David Herman at the University of Virginia, who's you know pointed out to me, you know, when you go back to the first part of Anna Karenina, you know, you're seeing a different Anna, not just because you're different, but because Tolstoy was different by the time he finished the novel. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was fascinated to read as well when you you talk about how your university has talked about AI itself. I mean, like you were saying with Arizona State University, it's not it's not being just talked about. I mean, obviously everyone says, "Oh no, students shouldn't use it to write their essays," but it's also for faculty members, isn't it? Apparently, to use and this wonderful thing. You say where there's an AI at the beginning, which stands for academic integrity. And then after that, the only AI in town is artificial intelligence and and what use we can make of it. It was the title of the memo was <laughs> academic integrity. And then the phrase academic integrity appeared nowhere in the memo. <laughs> How did they want you to use it? I mean, without revealing any, you know, any. No, I, I, I think, first of all, uh, I know from colleagues who um, have been to various kind of writers conventions and teachers conventions that AI is being marketed to high school teachers in particular for their grading. You know, so I think the phrase is so you can do what's really important and teach. Right. So they really want to get faculty or this is open AI, so ChatGPT, want faculty to be using these tools in things like syllabus design, right? But then all your courses are going to be the same. And the university, I think this is the problem with the kind of skew away from the humanities in large universities, is they're aware that there's a problem in the humanities uh, with ChatGPT, that it's going to be a detrimental to the teaching of writing and expressing uh, and, and kind of formulating an argument. But they know how interested people are in computer sciences, in business, right? Um, and so they don't want to take a position that is going to alienate those people. It seems like Arizona State, you know, I, we'll see what, what they do, but that they've, you know, you know, completely, from my point of view, it seems like they're sacrificing the humanities to computer science and to um, applications of ChatGPT. And so I think one of the things that, that faculty are, in the humanities are upset about is the university has been largely absent in terms of sketching out a policy position on AI. And that's left faculty floundering. I don't know, you know, we wouldn't want them to tell us, oh, it's okay if students use AI, right? Because that's the that's the basically the end of teaching composition in a, a way that's um, conducive to to learning how to express yourself in an interesting way. Well, and they mentioned previously that, you know, you go in very unexpected and non-chat GPT. Uh, predictable directions and suddenly in your essay and to great effect we're talking about Dostoevsky and Christ and the Inquisitor and I'm going to ask you to talk us through that. I worried a little bit about this because in a way the Grand Inquisitor is overwritten about as a topic in you know in Dostoevsky studies right um, 
Uh, D.H. Lawrence uh, famously misunderstood it because he read only the Grand Legend of the Grand Inquisitor in a separate brochure, right? So, but basically, it's one of the brothers, Ivan, is telling his younger brother, Alyosha, who is uh, extremely religious, um, he's telling him this story that he's invented, the Legend of the Grand Inquisitor. And basically, the story is that Christ shows up in Spain, in Seville, in the middle of the Inquisition, and he's immediately arrested by the cardinal in charge of, of the Inquisition. Um, and although Christ says nothing, the cardinal berates him for making belief too difficult, for giving people the freedom to choose rather than making choices for them. And... Um, he goes on to say that you, Jesus, did not understand that people are weak, that uh, it's only a select few who can follow you, and that they've brought their freedom to us and laid it at our feet, basically, and said, think for us, give us chains so that we can uh, we can survive. And, you know, he goes back to, I guess, Matthew and Luke and, and the notion of the temptation of Christ in the... Uh, in the wilderness, and Ivan says, or his cardinal says, you know, um, you were offered the tools of miracle, mystery, and authority as a way of getting people almost unthinkingly to follow you. And you, Jesus, turned these, uh, I sound like I'm preaching, I'm not even religious myself, you know, so, so you, you, Jesus, uh, you, Jesus, spurned these tools and left man in the difficult position of having to decide him or herself what to do with with his his freedom. Um, and so uh, I was thinking about, you know, we had spent two days on the legend of the Grand Inquisitor, and we had talked it through and uh, talked about the style of the presentation. I'd read them the biblical passages. And then suddenly, they were using ChatGPT to uh, write essays on the Brothers Karamazov. And, and this was somewhere in the back of my mind. It didn't really come to consciousness for a little bit. I, mean, I was I was kind of, I was asking myself, why am I getting so upset? Is it just the ChatGPT? And then I realized, no, it's it's that they used it to write about this novel. Yeah. And that ChatGPT mm. really is about miracle, mystery, and and authority. You know, you, you type, you say, write me a letter, write me a paper about... Um, time in the Brothers Karamazov. And then it just, you know, spits it out line by line, dramatically perfect. You have no idea where it comes from. It seems totally right. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing particularly wrong in it. Usually people are worried about, you know, the spread of fake information through AI and guess that's a problem, but that wasn't a problem here. It's more saying nothing and a flattening of affect and, and giving up your freedom. You know, if you're taking a course on Dostoevsky, one of the great things is being able to ask yourself, does this text speak to me? You know, how do I resolve this problem? How does Dostoevsky express himself? How does he he set up a scene, an argument? Uh, and all of these things, the students are just giving up that opportunity by using ChatGPT. So um, I think if it had been any other novel, I also would have been upset. But But this was particularly distressing. Yes, exactly. It's in the most fundamental way. They haven't got the point of Dostoevsky. <laughs> Maybe they have, but it's the kind of, is it that it's the abdication of like individual responsibility? Okay, this is a great point, which I should have made in the, the essay. Um, if a student had said, like had written an essay with ChatGPT and then brought that to the forefront and said, you know, I agree with the Grand Inquisitor. And that's why I've written my essay this way. But they didn't do that. You know, I mean, that would have been a really interesting kind of conceptual somersault to to take uh, at the end of the, the essay. But none of them did that. And so it was less a considered engagement with the argument of the Grand Inquisitor than a just lazy response to the text. And one that basically said to me, I read this, but you know, it didn't get to me. And so, you know, part of it was my response to this, and I'm still thinking this through is, you know, what do I do next time? Right? Um, obviously, uh, on some level, I did not teach this novel well enough, if a quarter of the class could do this. Um, so, you know, I think I'm going to 
before I'm going to, people talk about bringing ChatGPT into the classroom, but that, that by that, they mean, you know, using it to help students write their essays. I, I'm going to bring it into the classroom as a topic and explicitly foreground it the next time I teach this novel. I, I need to give myself a rest of a couple of years, I think. Because... Yeah, I think, I think you do. I mean, look, that sounds like a brilliant response, a brilliantly creative response. But I think Lucy and I, we are here to tell you that you must not blame yourself for this. It's not, I don't think it's to do with your qualities of teacher. And now not listen. the students either, because as you said, they'll be under all sorts of pressures. It's yes, it's, a, it's a very, very difficult situation. You know, if the, basically there's a thing that says, are you feeling stressed? Are you run out of time? Are you worried about this? You can press this button and that bit's done. I mean, I mean, it's something that as a reviewer myself, I, you know, I can't promise I would I wouldn't ever do it. Don't, but mainly don't because me, I wouldn't want you to get promise. found out. No, um, but you know, I get I'm I'm now going to be very anxious if I ever find myself delving into anything in a review. Yes, I'm that is to delve or write about existential crises because that that seems to come up over and over again too. Listen, Eric, I'm sorry we've run out of time because this is so fascinating. I could talk to you about it for ages. We will direct readers to read this wonderful essay. It really made me think about things in in a kind of scary way but we wish you the very best of luck in dealing with your generations of students and thank you so much for talking to us about it It was wonderful thank you both this was a lot of fun thanks all we have time for this week our thanks go to Lamorna Ash and Eric Naiman and thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardy we'll be back next week but for now from Lucy Dallas and from me Alex Clark goodbye Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.